welcome to another interview. I'm here with uh, Piotr or Esden, and we're going to be talking about open source EVA tooling and what he's been up to. Um, so stay tuned. A couple of questions that I'm asking everybody is just to say your name. Uh, Piotr Zdentemski. <laughs> so that's, that's my name. And your handle is Esden, right? Yeah, my handle is Esden. Um, yeah, I'm Piotr Zdentemski, but uh, here for all the English listeners, I usually present, uh, say Peter is fine okay. because why make it more complicated yeah. than necessary? And um, preferred pronouns? Uh, he, him. Okay. Um, I got started by listening to the unnamed reverse engineering podcast you were on last year, which was really cool. So um, I think that covers a lot of good technical stuff. And I'd recommend anyone interested in the, the technical side of things to just check that one out. I don't want to repeat too much of that stuff. In general, yet. that podcast is really good. Yeah. It's like Alvaro and uh, Jen are doing a great job with that podcast. I yeah, it's, ni it's a um, nice level of technicality, new one for me. So in so that um, interview you did with un the Unnamed Reverse Engineering podcast was in 2020. And so we've had a little bit of progress and I'd, I'd quite like to get an update on where we're at with the, um, crowd supply stuff. But just before that, could you give us like a, uh, a top level overview of Glasgow, what, what it is, what it's good for? Sure. So, um, for those that are here on video, the Glasgow is this, this beautiful device here. So this is actually ref C1. Um, the cool thing about Glasgow is basically, um, um, for anyone who is doing any type of uh, hardware development, uh, you end up in a situation where you have to connect to various uh, uh, protocols. Um, so the easiest thing is UART or SPI or I2C or something. And for that, there is plenty of tools for that. Glasgow brings this to another level. It uh, makes it is a flexible platform which. Uh, uh, the other devices very often are limited by the amount of um, protocols they support in hardware because they are fixed hardware devices, so uh, not programmable logic. Um, and so they have natively supporting some of the common interfaces you were at SPI, I2C. Uh, so they work okay for, for that. But if you need more flexibility, there's um, it becomes harder and harder. You have to either take a dev board and bit bang it uh, by hand or do some some other stuff. And Glasgow basically simplifies the whole process of that and incorporates it into a very pretty software framework package that is driven, like is built upon Python. And uh, you implement the PC side of the protocol implementation that talks over USB. It's all abstracted to the FPGA that is on the board and uh, you can implement in HDL, which is in this case NMIGEN or NMIGEN. This is like KiCat, KiCat. And you implement the protocol and then you have it in hardware implemented. So because of the programmable logic, you have it in hardware. The next level on top of that is um, the fact that Glasgow incorporates the um, open source FPGA tools into the framework. So uh, when you uh, start Glasgow, the application on the computer, you say Glasgow applet or run an applet name like UART, for example, it synthesizes the necessary bitstream on the fly, 
loads it up and starts talking to this. And uh, be again, because of the open tools that are pretty awesome and quick, this is just a few second process. Um, and uh, it allows for additional flexibility that goes beyond, even for the standard protocols, it like opens up uh, flexibilities that either you have to have a very specific chip that supports this kind of features, like um, being able to auto detect the baud rate and stuff like that. In Glasgow, it's like, if, the, if a feature is that you need for a certain job is not present, it is fairly easy to add. And I have to also say, it's like the NMEGEN HDL makes it uh, very nice to and easy and approachable to implement new stuff and modify it. Um, and the structure that White Quark put in place, which, yeah, we have to really praise White Quark for what she created here, um, is it is very, very easy to get into. It's very well structured and very well maintained, in my opinion. So that was my, my main uh, experience with that. So, yeah, so it is basically a USB to protocol converter, and the protocol is just a much wider selection than uh, some other tools. One, yeah, I think one of the things that I really like about the project is the, that the use of the open source tools enabling this synthesis on the fly. And I think we'll start seeing that in things like um, logic analyzers or oscilloscopes where for protocol decoding, you can have something that is, then you've got the power of that synthesis inside the machine, not having to wait for 10 or 20 minutes for some like the proprietary tools. And the, the yeah, other thing exactly. that I think is really um, great about the the USB side of things is um, White Quark did so much work on the like the bandwidth. So I think it, I think it got up to like 40 megabytes a second or something like really pushing USB speeds. Yeah, it's, uh, she really went deep down the rabbit hole <laughs> and um, uh, abstracted a lot of that stuff. Um, there is a very good talk uh, by Ati, Ati Grand. Uh, he made a, um, so I did it with him, but he made the technical side of the um, talk at FOSTEM this year, the, um, of the online version of FOSTEM. And there's a talk about Glasgow, so I recommend listening to that for him to explain a little bit more of the technicalities also regarding the USB stuff. By default, if you don't need all the bandwidth, you don't have to pay attention to it at all. It will just work. It is fully abstracted. It works great. And then he adds like a section where he describes, well, if you want to push it to its maximum capabilities, you have to pay a little bit attention to it. Like for example, filling the FIFO always to the full extent, even if you don't have enough data, like pad it or something, because then USB, this is an intrinsic issue with USB. If you send a, not a full packet, the PC is like, oh, so you don't have any more data for me. So I will just wait longer for the next time to ask you to send me more data. <laughs> and this results in, 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 in problems. So you basically pad it to the full extent, like always fill the FIFO all the way. And then uh, the PC will keep asking and you get the more bandwidth. These are details that you have to know. Um, and especially when you look at uh, like what extent White Quark went in there, if you look at the implementation of the USB, there is in that, in that file, in that Python file, there are like three pages of comments 
just describing how it works and why and what the design decisions were, which I love. It's this is if it's like I don't there's there's this metric where people are like, oh, you have to have comments on everything. But yeah, if they comments say the same thing as the source code, that's not useful. But in this case, it is explaining the thinking behind the software and how it is implemented. And this is the right way of using long comments. So it's it's really the documentation in source code is very undervalued by a lot of engineers or they don't have time or don't have the patience to write it, which is fair. But yeah, this this is this is another like great thing about this. That kind of stuff is invaluable for us to learn from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um now we know a little bit more about um um the the Glasgow project. Can you give us an update on the crowd supply? How's the um the production going? So uh yeah, it's not And are you going being hit by fast? the uh, shortages? <laughs> so so yeah, this uh, so first of all, um uh, the campaign went really, really well, and I'm very, very grateful to everyone who backed the project. So first, like I have to really say thank you to everyone who joined the campaign. The campaign is over, but uh, the pre-orders are still available. So if people want to get in on the fun, uh, they can still go on the Crowd Supply website and um, and put their uh, their pledge in. Uh, so they they. Those will go out immediately after the uh, pledges are uh, fulfilled. So uh, that's that's the best way to get in line. But um, so we have now, as we speak, what is it? March 16, 17th, I guess, when we recorded. Um, it's um, uh, we, we are a little bit late already on the um, early bird, what we promised on time, and the shortages in ICs are causing a lot of issues. And it is actually a cascade of issues because the problem that hit me was um, another product that we make is Blackmagic Probe. Uh, it's the JTAG SWD debugger with a built-in GDB server. So it's like a, um, it's a, it's a fairly popular uh, device. And, uh, um, we had the issue that the STM32s uh, that we use on there are were nowhere to be found. The the chip was very common to the level where you can can go on AliExpress and get like refurbished, essentially desoldered chips at any quantity you want. Uh, so this is how saturated the market with those chips was. And when I needed to make a new manufacturing batch uh, in January. Uh, none of this was available, like nowhere to be found. So I had to go through as like a special uh, arrow sourcing partner that has like some contacts in the depths of the chip IC supply chain, and they dug out four X priced chips. <laughs> For us, and fortunate, I was like, as long as we don't lose money on this, I will buy them. And so this is like costed me like days and weeks of work to like figure out where to find it, where to source it, talk to the right people. So that cascaded into the Glasgow thing. So uh, not working on this, I was not work. I was not able to work on Glasgow, and also. For the early bird, I was planning. It's like, oh, I can get all the chips off the shelf. Not and anymore, for example, no. the voltage regulator. Nope. nope. 
you have to buy it in bulk. So I had to place an order which has weeks of lead time because it's factory manufactured, not not from from some supplier. So that is like delaying the early bird stuff. So it's uh, incredibly frustrating. <laughs> I want to get this stuff to the people as soon as possible. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the situation with the IC supply, which uh, is, it's funny when you see on the news where the like presidents are talking about chip shortages. This means it's like how bad the issue is. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I think I follow enough people on Twitter that make things to have kind of seen the impact of this yeah, over the last few you months. Would yeah, but you would you would expect like, oh yeah, our community would be talking about it, like the, it was the case with the um, capacitors, right? Or the uh, yeah MLCCs were were shorted like two years ago or something because they were not increasing capa uh, capacity, but. That would just stay in our community. We would like, oh, we wait it out and then things sort of shake it themselves out. The prices go up, down, whatever. But if you have a moment where part of the corona relief bill uh, in the US contains provisions to support the IC manufacturing because the car manufacturers cannot get their hands on ICs, this is a little bit different level of problem. <laughs> So yeah. yeah, and this isn't your um, your first um, run with Crowd Supply, is it? No, no. This uh, the previous one was the icebreaker, which uh, I um, yeah, I the first version I designed together with Claire. Yeah, so, so that was also <laughs> something that um, that was um, an in a fun story for me to hear, and not not um, not one that I'd heard before on the unnamed Reverse Engineering podcast. So. Um, would you mind just giving us um, a, a recap here for any for any people who haven't heard this story? Uh, yeah, so so uh, icebreaker for those that are also on video here. So this oh, is got, the icebreaker. Got everything so to this hand. Is, uh, yeah, it's a it's a, a small uh, development board for the Ice Forty Up Five K, uh, which is as you know supported by the Open Tools. Um, yeah, so I I was approached by Claire at. Uh, Claire Wolf uh, at uh, CCC, or we, we were talking for, we reconnected like after a while, not talking to each other because our paths just split for some, some amount of years. And then uh, we reconnected at CCC several years ago. And then uh, we were talking and she was showing me the FPGA stuff. I got very excited. It's like, finally, finally, I can get into FPGAs and not be dreading using using the tools because you sh I, yeah, the, the, the proprietary tools come with uh, its own baggage, um, which was not motivating me to try to look deeper into this. But yeah, um, the open tools, she had like a demo for um, the iStick, I think, at that time. So I did a workshop like twice. It's like, oh, this is cool. This just works. It's like command line, install, done, works, great. It's like none of this like gigabytes and gigabytes of downloads for proprietary tools that might or might not work. So yeah, um, that motivation then led to us talking. It's like, yeah, it would be nice to have a dev board. Uh, and she was like, yeah, you do hardware manufacturing and uh, would you be interested to like look at my specs because we would like to have something that is better suited for workshops 
better suited for demos and different uh, examples of what the open tools can do. And she had like the, the list of uh, requirements, like um, P mods as the interface so that you can get more modules and have an, uh, be still backwards compatible with the proprietary tool chain, programmer, blah, blah, blah. And then um, to make that happen, we, we were like, you know what? I w- I'm still in Europe. I have, uh, I have a, still a weekend to spare. So I drove to Vienna. We hang out for a weekend uh, and uh, and designed uh, like twenty four seven. I was like drawing schematics, like converting her spec into a schematic, asking stupid questions. What about this? What about this? Then we, she was posting uh, on her Twitter my schematics to like get the feedback of the community, and we were like iterating over this and getting feedback and information. And yeah, that was the first version of this and. The coolest part about the whole process of the icebreaker was the incredible input from the community, like having uh, people like Sylvain Manau and uh, like many, many others who were looking at this and being like, this is a, what are the things I can build with this? And actually starting to build things with the early prototypes that I was making and sending out to a few interested people. And they were like, what about, can you add a jumper here? Because then I can do this thing, like using the SPI interface uh, that you are using for programming also to connect to the FPGA. And it resulted in incredibly powerful applications of that board because people were just like pounding on this and like yeah. trying to do weird stuff with it. Yeah. And I'm not sure you saw that picture at some point where I posted the piggybacked uh, uh, SRAM chip on, on top, top of and the And then the extra flash. pad just ready to bend the leg out so that you can access yeah, the was. Flash. Oh, yeah, I have it here, actually. So yeah. Yeah. It'll be difficult so, to see there. I'll put a, it's difficult. I'll put a photo in on the, um, the edit. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there, there we go. go yeah. So they're like, yeah. it's very old school solution if you were lived in the times of C64 or some other 8-bit uh, uh, home computers. It was a common way of adding additional memory. It's basically you take a chip, you piggyback it on the other one, you connect the data and address lines, and just uh, you swap like address the top address lines, or yeah, you connect an additional chip select line to the CPU, and you can expand memory that way. And that was idea from Sylvain. He was like, "Well, can we? We can." have this additional chip select and I would like to use this serial RAM for certain projects. And that's how it came about. I didn't have space anymore on the PCB and I didn't want to move more stuff around at that time. Uh, But adding one pad, yeah, no problem. Here you go. And uh, that is partly what enabled the Doom on ICE40 project that he made. that having that uh, capability of the PSRAM chip. Yeah, so if you've not um, watched that video, then I uh, recommend it. It's a really uh, good deep dive into how to do that kind of stuff and like a nice bit on kind of retro computing as well. Yeah, it's what I love about that video is uh, Sylvain didn't shy away from going like really deep diving into the thought process of realizing if it is even feasible that's that's the part that i really 
uh, really enjoyed listening to him making the thought process of, well, the the original Doom required this kind of system uh, requirements. How does this compare of what the ICE-40 can provide? And using that process of comparison of other systems and, of course, a lot of his personal experience um, building um, digital inter- uh, digital hardware or um, HDL, he could like make a gauge. It's like, yeah, this looks like it should be doable. Um, my expectation, he, he keeps breaking my expectations of what the yeah. ICE-40 Uplight <laughs> can, can do. Yeah. I thought... I thought, well, we can do like a um, 320 by 240 HDMI display, maybe with like an encoder chip. And then he proves everyone wrong with implementing 1080p on this. Uh, it's like uh, the things that the ICE-40 F5K can do, if you, um, if you are careful with your design, which I think is is something that is very underestimated with uh, the boards that are using small FPGA. Uh, I hear from some people um, that are coming to the FPGA world uh, before actually even diving into it. They are like, oh, the the icebreaker with the ICE-40, but it only has 5K LUTs. The project that I have in mind uh, will need, I don't know, 30,000, 100,000 LUTs. And I'm like, why don't you try with something smaller first? Especially, I I, I like some uh, the description here. Um, if you have too much space on the device, especially when you are learning to uh, write HDL, uh, the size will compensate for terrible design. And when, especially when you're starting out and learning, I think it is very important to learn good habits. And learn learn what the limit like how to overcome limitations of the underlying system. Same thing with programming. To be honest, that's my personal opinion. It's like having some limitations and some guardrails of what you can do. Um, for example, if you come from software programming to FPGA, it is very easy to start writing sequential code, which results in really atrocious like HDL. And you won't see that it is a problem until it can be too late. And your timing and is like, terrible and your design is huge, yeah. Exactly. But it's like if you have a big FPGA with really like high, good timing capabilities, you, will, uh, you might get away with it. And instead of learning, it's like, wait, wait, wait. This is not how I'm supposed to implement that. And so... I find as a learning target, having something smaller, um, I learned, it's, I'm, I'm also new to FPGA design. So let's, let's not fool ourselves here. So I, I, I am learning all the time and I'm running into these issues and I am recognizing from myself, it's like, if I, the fact that I'm running into those issues gives me an opportunity for learning. It's like failing is learning. <laughs> and so... Uh, if I design something and it doesn't meet timing, it means oh, I'm I will probably learn how to implement like write it better so that I do meet timing or understand what um, uh, synthesis seeds are and uh, like this kind of stuff. Where um, 
oh, do I have to search the space of the of the Monte Carlo seed? <laughs> it's like, is it something that you would touch on a Xilinx massive chip that can just, oh yeah, sure, the eighty megahertz timing, no problem, we can we can do that. Oh, but uh, but if you fill the chip really full, you have to start trying. It's like maybe different layout of this will will help. So yeah, I I find this as such a great learning experience for myself um that's yeah <laughs> let's just take a quick break here gosis hq open source eda tools and related software development okay we're back um so um let's talk now about um i think it's uh, fairly clear but um how uh, key a role do the open source EDA tools play in your business? Uh, so they, well, they are fundamental to a bunch of products that uh, we are making. Um, but um, it is even more so the fact that my experience in college of the uh, FPGA development tools was uh, contained in one class that I took, and it was uh, um, like uh, Xilinx ICE or something, I see. And uh, having to the professor distributing VMs to all the students because he started the class saying, uh, if I made you set it up, we would waste two classes on just that. And that's why here, take this VM and just deal with it. And we are you are not getting any hardware. You are designing everything in uh, in the simulator. And then on the like last two classes, I will take what you built and then try to run it on the actual hardware. So that was an interesting experience. I did enjoy writing HDL. And like this was, I think, uh, VHDL that we were learning there. Um, I really enjoyed the class overall, but the experience with the tools that are like contained in some VM on old Windows and clunky, clunky and slow um, was like, well, I have other things that I can work on. Uh, there's plenty of stuff in microcontrollers that I'm interested in. And it's like FPGA, if I have to, I will touch it, but otherwise I'm not interested. So um, it is more of a motivational thing where... Uh, seeing, uh, being at CCC and uh, um, first of all, like seeing Claire and I was like, yay, Claire is here. It's like, uh, so so talking to her and it's like, what are you working on? It's like, yeah, we made, I made a full flow FPGA tool chain open source. And it's like, wait, what? Uh, let me, let me take a look at this. And the immediate experience of, me coming from the open source background, like building open source software and hardware and doing this kind of stuff, this was immediately appealing. So, and the experience was very typical open source software. It's like, oh, uh, clone this Git repository and just uh, make, make install and add some dependencies and you're good. It's, it works. And I have command line tools. I, I feel at home. It's not something weird, different. It's just like GCC toolchain or any other experience with microcontrollers at that time already, where it's like you have GCC support for all the ARM chips and da-da-da. So it felt very familiar. 
and very easy to set up compared to a big honking IDE with uh, in 10, 10 levels deep dialogues where you can't find any option unless you are deeply familiar with the software and the development tools. And uh, or you get a course and a certificate from some government agency. <laughs> it's like this kind of stuff is. Um, so that resulted in me being interested in even touching this stuff. So, uh, oh, I want to build something with FPGAs. And then starting with that and doing the icebreaker and now icebreaker Bitsy doing Glasgow. And essentially that's what get, put me on the path of creating uh, this creating and contributing to this ecosystem and thus uh, resulting in a big chunk of uh, the business I'm doing here. So, so yeah, that's, that's how fundamental the <laughs> open source toolchain is by, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated answer <laughs> to an easy question in, in a sense, but um, I, I am. Yeah, it's interesting I, to, I mean, to talk to you about it though, because um in the open source community, we've got um, like a wide range of people. We've got people that are using the software. We've got people that are contributing. We've got, and I'm not sure how many people form their core business around open source. Right, right. Uh, so, so far, uh, so before the whole FPGA stuff, the core business was um, also tools it's so before okay let me give you a little bit of a background of one bit squared uh, where we started and where we are now so we started with uh, uav autopilots so we were making autopilots specifically dedicated to the paparazzi uav um, system so it's an open source framework for uav and it's f with focus on autonomy so it's an autonomous control system um, it's a different than like uh, ArduPilot, who's, wh which started with like manual flight and then added the autonomy parts later and da 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 stuff like that. Um, Paparazzi was always mainly academic, like university-driven autonomous flight systems, and we were making those autopilots. Then the, as a side effect, I was doing a lot with STM32s and microcontrollers. And uh, Gareth McMullen, he made the Blackmagic probe, and we were I was using the Blackmagic probe. I loved the Blackmagic probe. He didn't have time and resources to keep making the hardware, so I started making that hardware. Then the autopilot stuff crashed thanks to the Chinese market, and then basically cloning everything to nth extent and undercutting everyone and resulting in like, well, I cannot... It's not sustainable business, so I had to uh, give up on the autopilot stuff because there's not enough people that are interested in paying premium for better quality. But they they don't people don't understand what better quality means in that realm very much. It's like oh, I can buy just five of the cheap and cheap one, and I don't care if it falls out of the sky, except a few exceptions, uh, which then those that are are caring about this, they are paying 10 times more to get a proprietary system with certificates. So this is, I'm living somewhere in between this. So so anyways, that, that story to the side. Um, Blackmagic Probe was for a while the tool that I was focusing on. So let me and, just interrupt there and yeah. we'll do our best to pop that off the stack afterwards. Because one of the questions on Twitter was, um, now that Glasgow's 
here and kind of maybe more focus in your attention, what's going to happen to Blackmagic Probe? Is it still going to, still going to be a core product, still going to be supported? Oh, yes, yes. It's, uh, so Blackmagic Probe is very much uh, core focus. As I, as I explained before about the delays for Glasgow, it's like Blackmagic Probe sucked some of that time out, but not by its own fault. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's, um, it's, yeah, Blackmagic Probe is definitely still very much uh, core, core business for us, and I'm definitely focusing some of my time on this we we are making uh there i have plans for um next generation hardware this is already in the talks and it's like this is probably for for those that are not following very closely this will be probably good big news um and uh we are considering some improvements down the road to like make it better then there is as a side thing this is also not already yet it's, it will still take a while but um, um capabilities of tracing are are on the on the horizon uh orbiculum which is made by mubes uh, he he's working on that there will be some hardware for that and so there there is like the arm uh, specific stuff. So I think the question on Twitter was also in the realm, it's like, oh, Glasgow, doesn't it replace the Black Magic Probe? That sound, that's how I read it. It was not very clear to me how the question was. It's just what happens to Black Magic Probe versus uh, are there plans for Black Magic Probe down the road and how does it differentiate from Glasgow? Glasgow is much more of a multi-use tool. And uh, it has connection to OpenOCD. It can probably be made into Blackmagic Probe hosted because Blackmagic Probe can also be a hosted software on the PC and then use a device to talk to the device instead of hosting it directly on the hardware. Um, so that's something you can do with Glasgow. Um, but Blackmagic Probe is meant to be a very easy, you plug it in, it auto detects the target and you can flash it and debug it right there right without like figuring out open ocd scripts and that will continue to be the focus there and all we want to do is like enable more devices down the road like have more more capabilities to host more capabilities on the device which are making it what it is and what makes it as strong as it is so yeah okay let's um pop that back off the stack then <laughs> so um you were talking you were giving us the overview of um one bit squared and you got up to black magic probe so then there was um icebreaker we've heard about that yeah then and then and then we got into the uh into the fpga stuff and it is icebreaker uh, then icebreaker bitsy which is uh, currently it's pretty much finished it will get its own crowdfunding campaign but it is on somewhat hold until glasgow is in a uh, i i can push more of the like get the production button pressed and like get that done so uh, for example, we the USB cables are like on the way, like thousands of USB cables and thousands of uh, wire harnesses are on the way. And uh, I just got the other day a massive, heavy package with just the twenty, the twenty-four pin connectors. 
it's like when you when you make this kind of a campaign and you one part comes in two massive dense boxes <laughs> you're like okay well we are building stuff now so um, this kind of stuff is 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 in progress how when many that units are you making for the crowd supply uh over 2k so um so there will be several batches. There will be a small batch, still the early bird stuff. So that's probably a two. It's a two hundred and some change batch, so that we can have some compensation for for broken part from for breakage because that always happens in production. Uh, then the next batch will probably be a either a five hundred or a thousand batch. And then another thousand batch. So they will come in batches because the very big risk is always receiving a ton of thing that is that has some part swapped or some part not right or something doesn't work. And then you have to rework all thousands and thousands of words. Terrible. And so I rather uh, like ask people to have a little bit patience than uh, than delaying the whole project for everyone because we rushed it and wanted to wanted to bite off too much of a chunk so that that is the idea there um but yeah so icebreaker icebreaker bitsy glasgow there are plans for more campaigns it's like i have like four campaigns registered with crowd supply that are in multiple layers of uh, preparedness and progress um and uh, now, uh, and I also got, now I'm get, starting to get help. So um, I'm starting to hire a few people to work on different projects because it is becoming just uh, too much for one person. And uh, great news. Congratulations. We have too many ideas. <laughs> yeah, we have too many ideas for different things to make. And so, um, yeah. Okay, cool. So um, I'm going to um, slightly swerve the topic now um, because I'd like to talk to you a bit about um, community because I think um, uh, the first time I used Discord was because I wanted to join your uh, One Bit Squared Discord channel and I thought it was a, a really good space and I thought you did a really good job of keeping it a good space. And when I started my own Discord, I even um, copied your code of conduct. Um, I think your, um, um, how to say this, I, um, I'm inspired by the way that you manage the community and keep it, um, healthy. And I think that that's Thank an you. important part of, we've seen a lot of toxicity, um, making a lot of problems in the, um, computer and technology and programming space. And I think community is a really important part, a real big part of the foundation. So I thought it'd be good to just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard topic to talk about because yeah, it is. Um, Sorry to put I, you on I'm spot. Maybe you could talk, maybe you could um, tell us like the things that you think oh, are oh. important to cultivate a healthy community. Uh, I mean, I think we are overall. So let me let me start like from from the beginning. It's like um, we I had I needed just I, I'm 
historically, I like chats in general. So I was on IRC and then uh, when projects were happening, I was like, well, we need some chat because I'm not a big forum person myself. Um, so let's start with the technicalities and then I will get to the broader, uh, broader uh, community thoughts. So the technical stuff is like, oh, and then moving from uh, uh, from going together and having this like disjointed multiple communities depending on the project and then um discord i combine them into one they call it servers or instances or whatever you want to call it um and then uh, have all those channels together and combining those communities that have overlap in people as well as interests so that was the technical thinking there the the thing that uh, yeah i did see um, I am lucky in a sense that the communities that I was part of are pretty great. And the FPGA community is fairly diverse and really nice to each other, as well as the community before that, that, uh, that this is, FPGA is like the subset of the hardware hacking community. That's how I would call it. Uh, the hardware hacking community being the more technical, those people that are developing their own hardware from the also adjacent to the maker community. There is some overlap from that. And the, this is a community represented by um, events like um, uh, Teardown from CrowdSupply or Supercon from Hackaday. And people there did an amazing job like sophie kravitz that is organizing supercon yeah shout did, out to sophie oh total shout out to sophie she did an a monumental effort because i talked to her what it took to make it what it is to make it a diverse place make it a welcoming space make it a friendly space uh, and a safe space for a lot of people to be feel happy and want to share what they are doing without the otherwise common toxicity and like competitiveness and like of the tech community at large. And um, so those, this is, I was part of that and I cherish it and I'm happy to, to be part of this. And then from derived from that i like my code of conduct is derived from the other fruit code contact code of conduct because they also do a great job of managing their community so i am standing on the shoulders of giants and like deriving what i find important from others that are that put the effort into like making the trench, like, like cutting down those weeds and finding the path to do this right. So I'm learning from others and I just try to channel this. And regarding the community as it is the one bit squared discord server, it, it is basically seeding the community with the people you want to be surrounded with. And then tamping down when it's it goes in the wrong direction. And what I've like watching other communities, they're much too afraid to say stop to people. They give people way too much leeway to argue their pseudo arguments 
and like, but I am allowed to be an, a, a jerk. It's like, why is this behavior not okay? It's like, I am not being offensive. I am not being, being like imposing on others. And it's like, I've seen like some of those exchanges on some Discord servers and I am baffled why the mods are let, like it goes on for like 50 posts, 60 posts, 100 posts. And you're like, why is this still ongoing? This is pretty clear in the first two sentences. This person is, you cannot argue with them. And so there is no point. The community is more important than this one person. That's how I see it. And in general, even if you have a person that is contributing greatest technical things, they are not worth the community. The community, the broader group of people that are contributing, they are much more valuable than the one person that is doing the greatest things. If they can't change, they cannot behave, behave, basically, they cannot behave in social settings. Uh, Engineering is as much so social. It's like it's not removed from humans. It's like humans are doing this stuff. We are part of this. Human stuff is part of technical stuff. You cannot be technically correct and still be offensive. You are being just offensive. It doesn't matter what technically you do. And that's, that's how I feel about this. And that's why when things were happening on the sidelines, with uh, different people in those broader technical communities. Uh, yeah, you can try to like uh, take the megaphone from them, da, da, da. This doesn't help. It doesn't change them or it doesn't change the community they built around themselves. All we can do is build our own communities that are following a certain 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 like morals i would say it's like i it's just such an overloaded word it's that's why i was hesitating to use it values maybe um values it's like be be from the start inclusive and nice and say no to bad behavior even if it is just a seed of a bad behavior you basically say it's like no this is not okay here you cannot be like that and and this is what results from the get-go. You can't, it is really hard or pretty much impossible if you have a community run by a person that doesn't understand this. And then you are like, oh, but you are doing it wrong. You should change this. It's like, they will not change. They will not adjust this. They don't understand even what you're talking about and that it is an issue. Um, all you can do is, it, that's my take. It's like, they build your own communities and make them better, bigger, greater than those that are toxic. And this is how you win the fight, quote unquote. That's why, like, why Supercon was built upon certain values and is what it is and why it is so such a wonderful event. And because from the fairly early on, someone put the effort of seeking out the representation. Uh, this is, I think, what Sophie did so great is put the effort and the legwork in of inviting speakers from underrepresented communities. Now, after a few years, she doesn't have to seek anyone out. They come on their own. It's not like she has to invite specifically 
she still does this. Obviously, you are like, oh, you, you are great. And you are from also, you, you are doing something awesome first. And then you happen to be from an underrepresented community. Would you want to come to our event? And that's how you see it. And then later, people see the representation. Oh, those talks at Supercon. It's so diverse that you have so many different people here. And then the people that are from those groups will say, it's like, oh, this is an event I feel interested in speaking at because I see people like me speak there. That's how it works. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Really good to hear your views on that. I think this is a, um, a perfect time to call it a day on the interview. So I think we've been going <laughs> on for like nearly 45 minutes now. And it's nice to kind yeah. of end on this um, positive note. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you for putting this together. I, I really am happy that the open source FPGA uh, or Yosis HQ is doing this of uh, reaching out to the community and creating this interaction and this uh, conversation. I'm really hoping this will grow. And uh, I wish you the best for more interesting interviews. The ones that you so far had were very interesting already. And uh, thank you for thinking of me and uh, inviting me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. So I'll uh, see you around on the Discord channel. <laughs> see you there. Bye -bye.